is a threat that you face? Think about that for a moment. What is something that could potentially bring upheaval to your life that, that you think about? Some kind of pressure. I'm I'm trying not to work up your imagination and induce anxiety, just asking you what are some of the real things that you see that you would consider threats, maybe something that would affect your health or your children or your marriage or your job or something like that. Um, Whether or not we can pinpoint a specific threat, maybe you can't, and that's a good thing. The Bible certainly identifies Everyday pressure points for believers in Jesus Christ. It's clear in 1 John 2.16 that there is the allure of the world that is constantly putting pressure on us because it describes in 1 John 2.16 these desires that appeal to the eyes and the flesh that would turn us, draw us away from God in our passions. And so that's a, that's a pressure point. There's the sin of people around us because we live in a broken world, we are going to be affected by other people's sin, sometimes hurt, sometimes disappointed by others, or even tempted by others toward anger or jealousy or impurity. And then there's the, the reality of spiritual warfare. We can look in Ephesians chapter 6 and see that Satan and his demons want to entice you and I toward sin, toward discouragement, toward a sense of, of hopelessness. Um, Satan is actively engaged in hurling accusations about and at you and I that would seek to to diminish our hope in Christ, that would seek to cause us to doubt our faith in God or simply to doubt God. I say all that to say that there are are threats. They are real. And the question then is, how do you meet them? How, How do you face these threats when they come into your life. And the passage we're going to look at this morning, Isaiah 36 and 37, is going to offer us a really good lesson in this, in dealing with threats. Much of what we've read so far in Isaiah has been prophecy, has been looking toward what God has in store for his people and how he is speaking mostly about future things for the Jewish people, for the nation of Judah. Uh, These chapters, 36 through 39, are history. Uh, They are Isaiah moving into a narrative form where he is describing events as they unfolded, what happened, what took place during this, and how they, we'll see how they fit in as well into some of the prophecies he's been speaking. This portion of Isaiah is so much in terms of history that it's found verbatim in 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20. If you read through um, those chapters, you'll find that much of what's in Isaiah 36 through 39 is also there in 2 Kings. And, and Kings is just um, records of the kings of Israel and Judah and tells about their reign and whether they obeyed God or not. And so I, I made a, um, a crude timeline. If you have the sermon notes, it's an insert in the, the sermon notes. And, and I'll acknowledge that this is not the, the prettiest of timelines that you've ever found. And, and if you look at this and go, my fourth grader could make a better timeline than this. I'm confident you're correct. I didn't use any special apps, no tricks, um, but I needed something. I needed something to sort of see this in line, and so I just went ahead and printed something out for you. And if you look at the side that's numbered one there, the, 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 the dates on this timeline really are, biblical historians would all argue these are all very close as to, to what we think are the exact dates, give or take a year maybe in some cases, but it starts with an event back in Isaiah chapter 7. And you may remember this, that Judah is being threatened by Israel, nation to the north, and Syria, the nation just above that. Those two nations want to form an alliance with Judah. 
to stand up against the larger Assyrian Empire. Judah does not want to engage with them, and so those two nations are threatening Judah, and it is a real threat. And if you recall from Isaiah 7, at the very outset of that threat, this is when we see the ministry of Isaiah really come to the forefront because he goes outside of the city walls of Jerusalem and he meets Judah's king, who is Ahaz. And Ahaz is inspecting the, the conduit that brings water into Jerusalem. He's doing what a king should do, preparing for the possibility of an invasion. And so how are they going to be supplied water? And he's looking at that. And Isaiah comes to him and meets him. Isaiah brings his son, Shirjashib, which means a remnant will return. This word of assurance to Ahaz and that, that God is protecting his people. And, and Isaiah, if you recall, says, do not fear. Do not become anxious. Don't panic in these circumstances. Rather, trust the Lord. Do not become fearful, but rest in him. And if you remember the story, Ahaz fails the test miserably. Ahaz is already working on his own scheme, if you will, where he's going to send all kinds of silver and gold, whatever he can, off to the Assyrian Empire in the east and say, if you'll protect us from Israel and Syria, that's what we're paying you to do here, if, if, if you'll just come in and, and, and help us with this threat. Remember that scene. Remember that confrontation between Isaiah and Ahaz outside the city walls of Jerusalem at the water conduit there because it's going to come back to us a little bit later in our reading. But, but it, it stands out as one example of a godless, fearful, man-centered, take matters into my own hands kind of response to a threat. Shows us what not to do, which is to dismiss the, the, the word of the Lord and, and to do what I think strategically is the best thing to do, and it proves disastrous. Now, Fast forward, there's several years where Ahaz shares the throne with his son Hezekiah, um, the, kind of a co-regency in Judah, and during that time, Judah's neighbors to the north, Israel, one of those who, who threatened to come against them, is taken by the Assyrian Empire. 722 BC, uh, the Assyrians march in. They've been taking land in Israel for a time, but in 722, they sort of complete the takeover by taking the capital city of Samaria. And so the, the Jewish people in Israel are captured and deported and taken to other lands, and people from other captured lands are brought in. And now that nation becomes this sort of mixed race group of people that we know in the New Testament as Samaria. After Ahaz dies... Hezekiah is now ruling alone. And Hezekiah begins to make dramatic changes in Judah. He puts away the idolatry. He begins to turn and reform the nation and draw people back to worship the living God. 2 Kings 18 says, Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He held fast to the Lord. He was blessed by the Lord. Hezekiah begins a period of of sort of revival in Judah. He is, he's not perfect by any means, and that's important for us to see. We'll see a glimpse of perhaps his imperfection here today, but a, a larger part of that next week. And, and that's important to the flow of Isaiah. Next week, when we look at chapters 38 and 39, and, and we see Hezekiah struggle in one area, it's going to be important to understanding the coming of the servant in chapters 40 and beyond. But we'll get to that. Hezekiah mostly led well, mostly followed God well, sought to be a, a, a king who led his people in the worship of God and gives us a marvelous example by God's grace of how to respond to a threat. And that's where we are in chapter 36. 
The great Assyrian Empire is now being led by a king named Sennacherib. This has come down through several kings from the time of the meeting with Ahaz. There's clear historical evidence of Sennacherib. We have some of his own writings, some of his own records of what he did, what he accomplished as king of the Assyrian Empire. His first task as king is to subdue those that have already been defeated. It's just like we talk about in this country about the peaceful transition of power after a presidential election. In in nations like this, when, when there was a change of king, it was a time when there could be uprisings, when if they have conquered other lands, those lands could sort of challenge and test that new king. And so one of the first things Sennacherib has to do is deal with Babylon in the east and, and, and try to put down some uprising there, and he does that successfully, and then he begins to move west to smaller states that had some backing from Egypt. And you see on the map the area of Philistia, that's in kind of the goldish sort of color there, um, that cities in that area had been told by Egypt, we'll, we'll stand with you when the Assyrians come. We'll help you to, to fight them off. Well, Sennacherib begins to move down and, and, and starts to take more and more places. And so by 701 BC, he's moved down the Mediterranean coast. He has subdued some cities. He has taken some others. And he is beginning to move east toward the green area, which is Judah, Jerusalem being the capital of Judah. And so he is headed in that direction. According to Sennacherib's own record, he wrote this, As for Hezekiah the Judean, who did not submit to my yoke, I besieged and took 46 of his strong-walled cities, as well as the countless small villages in their vicinities. Again, as you're looking at that map, the the city of Lachish, he comes in and he begins to take that city, and and that's an important city. On the map, it's right in between Philistia and, and Judah, it was a Judean city for a long time because Rehoboam, who became king after Solomon, fortified Lachish for the very reason that he wanted a, a, a wall there to protect them from the, the Philistines and from Egypt below. And so Lachish was a fortified city, and now that's under attack and is on the verge of falling to the Assyrians here as, as they begin to make their move into Judah. It's during the siege on Lachish that 2 Kings 18 fills in a piece of the story that Isaiah doesn't give us. One of the things that Sennacherib did is he, when they would conquer cities, demanded that they pay tribute. And when they threatened cities, demanded that they pay tribute. You, you pay us money and, and, and we'll do good by you, at least allegedly that was the, the case. And, and, and so there is this demand now on Hezekiah and Judah that you need to pay tribute. 2 Kings 18.14 says he demands this payment. And the verses that follow in 2 Kings 18 say, Hezekiah gathered together about a ton of gold and far more than that in silver, and he had it sent over to the king of Assyria. Now, if we're we're trying trying to be generous in our assessment of Hezekiah, the argument might be that it's something of a stall tactic. At minimum, it's it's keeping... Assyria at bay, Lachish is about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and so you're trying to maybe um, at least have more time to fortify Jerusalem. Worst case scenario is it is a lapse of faith for Hezekiah. It is a, a moment that is not great for him when he tries to do something that his father did, which was sort of pay for uh, the, the ability to stay safe. Regardless of Hezekiah's motive, the payment did not work, and this is what Assyria is known for. Do this. We'll, we'll take care of you. We won't attack you. Well, sure enough, 
All of this gold and silver is sent, and Isaiah 36.2 then says, Sennacherib sent one of his officials from Lachish over to Jerusalem to confront Jerusalem and to demand that Jerusalem surrender. So if you look at Isaiah 36, verse 2, and the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. That location should sound familiar. That's where Isaiah met Ahaz and said, do not be afraid. Trust the Lord. He is eager to defend you and protect you. You need to trust him. And now here we are some 30-ish years later, and Ahaz's son, Ahaz having disobeyed the Lord, Ahaz's son is now being confronted by an Assyrian diplomat who's putting him to the test, who's come to say, you must surrender. Verse 4 of chapter 36, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Let me stop there. So this, this envoy comes out. Hezekiah sends some of his own cabinet out, if you will, some of his own counselors to meet with him. Hezekiah doesn't meet with him, but they meet at this place where Isaiah had confronted Ahaz. Hezekiah's counselors are now meeting with Sennacherib's envoy, this Rabshakeh, that's this, the title, the Assyrian title of his office. He demonstrates some knowledge of Judah's history. He's a, he's a good diplomat in that he's, he's studied enough or he's been prepared enough to at least say some things that will um, perk up the ears of those who are listening. The one is that you're trusting in Egypt. We've already seen that in Isaiah, that Judah was toying with this idea of appealing to Egypt for help. And, and so the Assyrian diplomat says, so you're, you're going to trust in Egypt, are you? Did you see what we did over to those Philistine cities? All those ones that supposedly were going to be backed up by Egypt, we've conquered them already. So that's not going to work for you. The, the next thing he says, he clearly has understood something that's happened, but he's misinterpreted it completely. When Hezekiah took down the high places and the idols, he's doing what God wants him to do. He's cleaning out the idolatry. But the Assyrian diplomat sees that as he must have offended God because he took down all of the idols of that God. And so he, he doesn't understand the Jewish religion at that point. And he says, how can your Lord possibly support you when you've taken down all of these things to, to worship him? So he's wrong on that count. But then look at what he says in verse 10. This is the Assyrian speaking. Moreover, is it without the Lord, Yahweh, that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Now, this is really interesting. The Assyrians are not known for their honesty and integrity, especially in warfare. And so there's certainly a strategic element to this that may have nothing to do with what was actually true, whereby they, they say something to the one they're about to subdue. Hey, your God is already on our side. We've already talked to your God, and he's now joined our team, and he's not going to help you. 
what makes that very interesting in this case is because of what we already know from Isaiah, and that is how often God has said, I will use these nations as an instrument in my hands for your judgment. I will, you continue to carry on in rebellion and idolatry, then don't be surprised when I raise up Assyria against you in judgment. And so when he says that, whether he's truly understanding or not, he's certainly saying something that catches the attention of the Jewish listeners at this point, who already are aware of the idea that the Lord might be using the Assyrians to punish them. Now, here's the other aspect of this. This is all happening out in the open. They're not meeting in some quiet conference room somewhere. This is happening outside Jerusalem's walls. And what we'll see in a moment is that there are, there are people on the walls of Jerusalem. And so this is being heard, this conversation, to the point that the, the leaders from Judah who are sent out plead with the Rab Shekeh and say, do you think you could speak in Aramaic to us? Which is to basically say, we don't want our people to hear all of this because we don't want to panic them any worse. Well, it's a nice question, but you really don't expect him to say, oh, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And so look at verse 12. But the Rab Shekeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? There is a picture for you. That's the nature of siege warfare. It is to have a massive army to surround the city and to eventually just cut them off from any kind of uh, growth, any kind of harvest, and ultimately their water supply to the point that they, if they don't surrender, if they, aren't, um, if they don't build walls up to the wall, mounds up to the wall and attack it that way, they just let them starve to death in there until people finally come out and surrender. And so the request completely backfires. Not only would the Assyrian not speak in Aramaic, but he now will speak louder. And so look at verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? couple things going on here. First is Assyria is good at making false promises. You surrender, it'll be, it'll be the best thing you can do. You'll still be able to eat and drink. And, and even in the worst case scenario, we're going to move you to another land, but it'll be even better than your current land. And you're going to love it. If you just surrender, it'll go well for you. We, we know this is a lie because we know Assyrian history, but he's trying to, to say, there's an easy way out of this. We can either lay siege to you and you can starve to death 
or you can just give up and maybe, maybe things will work out great. We'll spare your life. Satan often uses similar tactics when we are facing threats, pressure. Here's an easy way out. Here's something better. You don't, you don't need to stand there in all of your integrity and do the right thing and, and obey God. Here's, here's the escape. Here's the simpler way of, of, of handling this conflict, this trial, this testing. Just take this exit and you'll be safe. Devil deceives people with what Hebrews calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. In times of, of threats and, and pressure, Satan is very prone to find ways to try to lure us into ways other than obeying God, other than pursuing holiness and say, just, just follow me, just come out this way and, and it'll all be okay. For Judah, it's this sort of lying promise that the Assyrians made to many others before they vanquished them. For you and I, there may be a host of worldly escapes that set before us that are something less than clinging to holiness and trusting in the Lord and doing His will, even if it means remaining in the midst of the trial and trusting Him. But the Assyrian takes it a step further. He says to the people, don't listen to Hezekiah when he tells you to trust Yahweh. You really think that Yahweh is going to, to save you? Well, guess what? So did all of the other people in all of the other cities that we've already conquered. They all prayed to their God. They all pleaded with their God. And look what's happened to them. We've destroyed them. We've conquered them all and we've defeated their God. And there is, he, he made it very clear at the outset when he said there is one great king in verse 13, and that is the king of Assyria. It is a direct shot against Yahweh. It is to say, we've got the great king. He's the one over our nation, and you're foolish if you trust yours, because he not only will not stop us, he cannot stop us. At this point in time, fortified cities in Judah have been taken. The threat is real. The Assyrian army is 30 miles out. They can make that journey in a very short time, and they can surround Jerusalem and squeeze it until the people starve or surrender. And so Hezekiah's counselors bring this word back to him. They have been engaging with the Rabshakeh, and they now go back to Hezekiah. How did he respond? This is where we need to learn now how to respond. Chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. The Hebrew language at the beginning of 37 is at the hearing of his counselor's words. He is, he is given all that this Assyrian diplomat has just told them, and what is Hezekiah's immediate response? It is to tear his clothes, it is to put on sackcloth, and to enter the house of the Lord. In, in the face of a serious 
deadly, real threat. Hezekiah's action is to go immediately to the Lord, to seek the Lord, and secondly, to send his counselors to go and and get godly counsel. Go to Isaiah, tell this to Isaiah, and see if the Lord has a word that he would give through Isaiah. Friends, that that right there just, just gives us so much to think about in terms of our response to things and what, what our immediate reaction is and, and, and how we sort of respond with panic or, or whatever steps we try to take. Here is, here is a man who is the monarch. Everyone is looking to Hezekiah for leadership at this point. This is one of those, those crisis moments when all of the TV cameras are out on the White House lawn and all the breaking news is happening and everybody's eyes are on the White House to say, what's he going to do? This is that kind of moment. And here is Hezekiah now thrust into this situation. In fact, his, his rule is so solitary at this point that he is even told when his guys went out and, and talked to the Assyrian diplomat, it says that they did not speak back to him, other than the plea for him to speak Aramaic, they kept their mouths shut because they were commanded by Hezekiah to do so because he didn't want them negotiating. Just bring the information back and it would all be on him. So this is the moment when the king must respond. And there are many, many people who would look at Hezekiah's response and go, weak. I mean, that, that's what you do? In, in that moment when the enemy has said, I will crush you, You don't start plotting strategy. You don't meet with your your military advisors. You don't immediately head into the situation room and and assess all of Judah's ability to withstand this. Hezekiah instead demonstrates outward signs of grief. He, He tells them to go to Isaiah because it's a day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace. And he leaves his counselors to go and pray, and he sends them to go and see if God has a word. To be clear... There's something here that it's easy for us to overlook, and that is that, that sackcloth, that putting on that garment, wasn't merely an indication of grieving. We, we tend, it, is a, it is a sign of grieving, the sackcloth, and so we tend to just see it that way. But the fact that he also, the, the words that are carried to Isaiah is, this is a day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace, tells us that for Hezekiah, one of the things that's going on here too is repentance. Hezekiah understands the history that's led up to this moment. And Judah hasn't been pure and innocent in all of this and and done the right thing and suddenly this enemy has come and so we're all grieving this enemy coming. He knows that for decades now, Judah has been struggling with its obedience to God and his reforms have begun to make change. But for years, God has said, I will bring judgment against you for this idolatry. And this is Hezekiah in this moment identifying with the sins of the nation and he is repenting. He is describing this as rebuke and disgrace because he knows that this is something coming upon them because of their own sin. Now listen, not not every threat that comes your way is an act of God to bring you to repentance, but it could be. And our response to trials and pressures and tests and tribulations should involve self-examination. That should be a time for us to pause when, when something's coming that's bringing great pressure, when there's a threat. One of the responses should be, Lord, is there something I need to learn in this? Is there something you're seeking to purge from my life in this? 
Is there an area where I have just been blind to my own sin? Are you, are you striving to get my attention? Now, again, that, that's not behind every threat and every suffering. Just look at the book of Job, and you will see that Satan is, is, is intimately involved behind that attack, and Job is an upright, righteous man. But we should not dismiss this easily either when we face these kinds of situations to take time for self-examination and to say, God, by your spirit, please help me here to see what's going on in my own heart. And one of the paramount lessons we'll get to in a few weeks when we start in the book of James, right there in chapter one, there's all kinds of trials that come your way. And so what are you to do? Cry out to God for wisdom. I, I need in those moments help to think about this more clearly, to understand what's happening and how to respond. And if it's clear that we've sinned, and maybe it was even sin in response to somebody else's agitation and sin, still, step one is repent. Acknowledge before God where you have done wrong, where your thoughts have gone astray, where your actions have not been pleasing to him. Acknowledge that I may be one of the reasons why I'm in this situation. And that's what Hezekiah does. He is a godly leader, and he is not above admitting that he had responsibility in his nation's sin, and he repents. It's interesting, that reaction as opposed to what we might expect, which is the king to sort of rush into the Lord's presence and say, Lord, deliver us. We're your people. Do something about this. Uh, Hezekiah is under no illusion here. That, that he deserves anything in terms of deliverance, that the nation deserves anything. The nation has, for a long time, has struggled in its disobedience to God. And so Hezekiah's first action is repentance, humbly confessing his own sin before God. He uses the description of the woman in labor in verse 3, who doesn't have strength to bring forth the child. That, that, that analogy, that illustration may sound odd in our day and age, but this was a time when, when labor and childbirth had no real medical interventions of any sort. And so when a woman giving birth ran into complications of any form, breech birth or anything else, there were no real alternatives other than to just remain in labor. John Oswalt writes this, he says, once labor began, there was no turning back. Either the child was delivered or both mother and child died. Hezekiah sees himself in that predicament. Jerusalem must be delivered, but neither he nor his government nor his people has the strength to do it. This is what Hezekiah is facing, and he is humbling himself before the Lord. He, he seeks the Lord, he seeks counsel, he repents. Let's read on. Verse 5, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, watch the language he uses here, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned, going back to Sennacherib, and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna for he had heard that the king had left Lachish now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush. He is set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. And let's stop there. This is really fantastic, this passage. So they go to Isaiah, ask what to do. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah's counselors, not only the, the don't be afraid, but it is don't be afraid of what you've heard from those young boys that Sennacherib sent over. That is as close as we're going to get here to a mocking insult when he says, when Isaiah says, 
those, those, silly, those silly lads, those foolish boys. You, you're coming to me and, and, and you're getting tempted at this point to get all worked up because of some things those young boys from Assyria have said? Don't even worry about it. Don't fear at all. They are foolish children. Do not fear their foolish words. Can I interject something here? And that would be, there are times when there are things that we allow to frighten us, to tempt us toward anxiety, that are foolish words that we have heard from someone in the world, and, and they are just, we, we've been inundated sometimes with foolishness, and it causes us to panic and get anxious. You, you, you spend enough time on social media, or you spend enough time sitting in front of the TV watching news, and almost daily you will be warned that you're gonna be killed by some new disease, some growing crime wave, some environmental disaster, it's gonna get you, it's gonna kill you, it's breaking news, it's coming. And, and, and it, there, there's, a whole, there's a whole industry that lives on that, on feeding that sort of frenzied kind of language to keep us living on the edge and clicking further and listening further. And I would submit to you that, that what Isaiah says here is helpful. Crime, disease, and disasters are real, but who is your king? And what has your king said? Over and over and over, our king has said in scripture, do not be, what? Afraid. Do not fear. Trust me. Fear God. Even Jesus says that. Don't, don't be afraid of the one whose who's only thing he can do is take your life. Fear God. Your soul rests in his hands. Are we allowing foolish words from foolish people to drive us deeper into this threat and deeper into the anxiety and, and the fear when we need to be hearing from our king? Isaiah then prophesies, and what we read there in verses 8 and 9 is, is that the king of Assyria is going to get rumors that, that there is an attack going on back in the homeland, back in Nineveh, coming from the king of Cush. And so that's going to begin to distract Sennacherib, and he's going to start to feel stretched because he's worried about what's going on back there. And so he wants to, he wants to wrap things up with Jerusalem. He's not, he doesn't want to retreat and leave this major capital city standing. He wants to defeat it. And so what he decides to do is he's going to send a letter back to Hezekiah from his own writing that will, will say clearly, you need to surrender. A lot of it's just he's, he's pressured in this situation to want to move. So here's what the Assyrian king sends to Hezekiah, verse 10 of chapter 37. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? This is the king of Assyria blaspheming God and saying, you think he's going to bail you out? He can't. All these other kings thought their gods would deliver them, and we've destroyed them all. This is hopeless for you. And so that's what gets us now to the heart of Hezekiah's response. The king of Assyria has blasphemed Yahweh and said, Yahweh is incapable of defending you. So what does Hezekiah do? Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah, 
What's he do right away? Went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. What a scene. Hezekiah goes into the house of the Lord and he takes Sennacherib's letter and he unrolls it and lays it out and essentially says, Lord, do you see this? Do you see what he's written about you here? Do you see how he is mocking you in this letter? You who are the maker of heaven and earth and Sennacherib is mocking you. And what he says in verse 20 is the, is the point that if you take one thing away from today, I, I hope it's this, when essentially he, he concludes his prayer by saying, Lord, I am praying for deliverance so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone are God. That if you... If you rescue us, because in fact, he's, he's reciting the accurate history he, here when he says, yeah, we know that the kings of Assyria, not just Sennacherib, but all the ones before him, they have laid waste all the nations and their lands. They have cast the gods of those nations into the fire because they were just wooden stone idols. But here is Hezekiah. He's turned to the Lord. He sought godly counsel. He's, he's repented of his own sin. And the fourth thing he does is he chiefly desires that God's glory be made manifest through his life. In the midst of facing a real threat of an army that has the power to surround them and starve them and kill them, Hezekiah has learned by God's grace that he needs to be devoted at this point to God's glory. And God, will they see you through this? And so he asks God, to intervene and deliver Judah. Because if Assyria did what Assyria has always done, it would eventually surround Jerusalem. But if, if this once a city was preserved, if this once Assyria couldn't penetrate the walls and eventually was defeated, then that would be a testimony to every other nation that had been crushed by the Assyrian Empire and every other nation that was scared of the Assyrian Empire that there is one true living God who destroys enemies. Hezekiah's desires for the glory of God. Yes, he is still pleading for rescue, but it's clear from this record that what's of greatest importance in, in his mind at this point is Yahweh's greatness. I, I want them to see that you are great above all. If we're honest, it's not an easy lesson for you and I when the trials and the pressures and the threats come to immediately think, ah, trial, an opportunity for God to be glorified through my life. Yes. Ah, not the immediate response, is it? And yet that's, that's what's being pictured for us here, is keeping the glory of God, God's fame, God's majesty, God's greatness at the forefront of our response. Do you see your, your marital strife? 
your family struggle, your sickness, your trial at work, your threat of financial loss or relational loss, do you see it first and foremost as an opportunity for people around you to see the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in you and through you? Remember how we were just singing about all our joy is Christ in me, that, that Jesus lives through me. Is there opportunity in those moments for people to see Christ in you, to see your dependence, your humility, your bowing before him, your resting in him, your trusting him, your believing in him, even if the trial doesn't lift? That mindset takes prayer on our part, asking God to help us. It takes help from other brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for me to be steadfast. Pray for me to trust in the Lord. Pray that I would glorify and magnify God. In, in, in how I walk through this. We need help to say that, God, you need to use what's happening to me to help others see that you're the only true God. That's what Hezekiah has come to at this point. In the, in, in the midst of our confusion and our pain and our struggle, God can still be seen. His mercy and his might can still be evident to the people around us, even as we go through hard times. God speaks back. He delivers his condemnation of Assyria in verses 21 through 29, where he describes what will happen to Assyria. The heart of God's response is, is one simple point to Sennacherib. You think you're really something, don't you, Sennacherib? Don't you know, you fool, that you are an instrument in my hands? You have done nothing apart from my hand. You have gone no further than my boundaries. Verse 26 this is God to Assyria. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. So Necherib, you fool, you think that you are the great king that runs this empire, and I tell you that your boundaries, what you have done, none of that is apart from my sovereign hand. I have used you as an instrument to bring judgment upon idol-worshiping people who have despised me, and I have used you, and, and you have been my tool, and you will go no further, you fool. Verse 29, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and bit in your mouth and turn you back on the way by which you came. Sennacherib, you fool. You will go where I say, when I say, because he is the God of heaven and earth. That's the word of the Lord. He gives assurance to the people of Judah in verse 30, when it says there, this shall be the sign for you. This is now to Judah. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. Second year, what springs from that. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. What God is saying at this point is, yes, the Assyrians are coming, but here's my promise to you. Maybe this is summer, maybe this is moving into fall. You'll eat just fine. Next year, you're going to eat from what was left over. It's going to be a little bit leaner because the Assyrians may be present during that spring planting season. There's a matter of months here where the Assyrians are, are a threat. But the year after that, you are going to plant and harvest and, and life will be normal and the Assyrians will be like a distant memory. That's God's promise to, to Judah at that point. We know Sennacherib marches his troops. He goes to Jerusalem. He surrounds the city. 
but the offensive ends exactly as God has determined it without even an arrow being shot into the city from the Assyrians. Verse 33, therefore, thus says the Lord God concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, returned home, and lived at Nineveh. A number of years later, verse 38 is probably about 15 years down the road, he's worshiping in the house of his God, and two of his sons have him killed, and another son becomes king. History is filled with the discussion of, of, of this scene and this slaying of 185,000 outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And there's all sorts of attempts to try to explain it away as being less than what God's word says, all the way down to insects came in and ate up all their armament overnight, and they had no armaments in the morning and had to go back home. The scripture makes it very clear that God brought death upon them. And, and the interesting thing is, for those who look at this and go, well, I don't know if this is true or not, Sennacherib in his own annals, in his own record of his, his conquests, we read earlier how he had defeated 46 fortified cities. He goes on and he says this, I shut Hezekiah up himself in Jerusalem, his royal city, as if he were a bird in a cage. And that's it. He goes on and the only thing he does, he, he says, and then he paid tribute. He paid gold and silver and and all this stuff, but it is, it is the greatest spin job that you will ever get of, we surrounded Jerusalem, and he was trapped like a bird in a cage, and that's all you need to know, because that's all there was, because God had made a line, and, and Sennacherib was stopped at that line, and he could not get in to the city. All he could do was surround it. The, the annals of Sennacherib are filled with stories. What makes this one about Hezekiah stand out is because if you read them, you, you read how he, how he defeated kings, how he chased kings, how his army captured kings, how kings were dragged back before him and bowed down to him, how kings were taken and deported to other lands. He was generally pretty reasonable to the kings. He just sent them to other places, but then he would take their court and their officials and he would kill them and put their bodies up on poles as messages to the others. Those are the kind of things you read in the annals of Sennacherib. And then you come to this strange piece about this one king that he surrounded but couldn't kill couldn't capture, couldn't deport, and that king is Hezekiah because God drew the line. And God said, you will go no further than this. I will defend this city. And he is the same God that you and I worship and put our trust in. He is the same God that in time of threat and pressure urges us to run to him, to come to him and to cry out to him and to plead to him and to seek counsel from other godly people and to ask them to pray and to plead for me to, to walk in obedience. It's the same God that would urge me as Hezekiah did to come before him and repent, to examine my own heart and motives and see if there's any wicked way in me that I need to see in the midst of this trial and learn. And he is the same God who sets before me his glory and whom I should humbly acknowledge and bow before and desire that all who see me walk through this see him and see his greatness and his power. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for 
this record from history. Thank you for the sources even outside of scripture that demonstrate to us how city after city was destroyed and their gods burnt and yet Jerusalem stood. Lord, it is a reminder of your strength and glory and power and faithfulness that when you have determined to your people that you will preserve them, that you will do all that you say. Lord, thank you that the God who is great, who is able to protect Jerusalem, who is able to bring his son gloriously from the dead, conquering over sin and death, and to accept his sacrifice on the cross as pleasing and satisfying for our sins, is the God who promises to all who will trust in him that we have an anchor beyond the veil in the heavenlies, that that we have a firm, sure hope in this God who is reliable and faithful. Father, if there's any listening this morning here, watching online, that, that are struggling with trials and pressures and don't know, don't feel like they have hope, Lord, would you Would you show them today that there is hope in Jesus Christ and the servant who came and who gave his life as a ransom for sinners and rose from the dead. That by turning from sin and trusting to him, there is life and forgiveness, hope. That there is a one who can be trusted not only for this life, but for the one to come. Lord, help us as your people to stand firm not on our own strength, but steadfast because of your power and goodness and promises. Help us to rely on you and trust in you even as we face whatever the, whatever the trials are that we are in now or the ones that will come up this week or this month. Lord, please, by your Spirit's enabling, by the help of brothers and sisters in Christ, remind us to, to magnify you in those moments, to want to see you your name made great. Help us to to be a people who even now, as we sing and rejoice, to exalt who you are, because you are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the one who is above all. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.